Welcome to Money Talks. My name is Mike Campbell. Got a great show planned for you. Looking forward to hear from Tony Greer. Now, let me give you the latest from Tony, PG Macro, as that is November 14th. He watched the market action and says, you know what? Get into stocks. Here's the kickoff. He wasn't late to that. He was right on time. The earliest I saw, I found, by the way, saying, look, super bullish on stocks. Well, I'm going to get the latest update from Tony when we have a visit in a few minutes' time. Also, I've got uh, Ozzy Jurek talking. I mean, there's so much going on in the real estate market. We'll give you the latest. But I want to know this. It's simple. When governments say they're going to build new housing, why does it seem to always be more expensive than if the private sector did it? I'll get into that with Aussie. I've got Victor Adair. What a wild week in the markets, significant week in the markets. He'll share with us on that. I've got a great quote of the week. I've got an outstanding Goofy Award. And we've got some shocking stat. In other words, there's a lot coming your way. But first, you know, everywhere I look, the elites are running scared. But I am amazed how long it's taken them to notice the anti-establishment sentiments. Eight years after a Brexit vote and Donald Trump was first elected, five years after the massive yellow vest protests in France, three years after the massive protests in Europe over COVID restrictions, it's two years after the truckers' convoy, year after the Netherlands farmers' protests resulted in significant political change, now you've got the farmers, truckers, and rail workers' massive protests in Germany, and they still don't seem to really understand what's going on. In fact, they dismiss it. They use the word populist as a pejorative. As Grand Greenwald states, institutions of authority, including corporate media, recognize they have lost faith and trust of millions of people who no longer believe anything they say, but they never ever examine whether their own conduct and mindset is a cause of that. Interesting to note, the theme of the World Economic Forum right now in Davos is rebuilding trust. But no acknowledgement that their own actions have fueled that mistrust. They seem so oblivious in their arrogance and their hypocrisy uh, to things like the optics of taking a private jet to a climate conference or pretending they commute by bicycle only to get picked up in a chauffeured uh, vehicle once the cameras stop rolling. There's lots of examples. And I'll tell you, without an all-world supersized mea culpa, that includes every government institution, there is no chance to rebuild trust. Now, look, I know there's always been elitism, but in my life, I don't think I've ever seen anything like it. I've never seen the degree to this attitude as we know best, better than you, you, the little people. I think COVID exacerbated the divisions with the laptop class and those at the lower end of the income spectrum. With the legacy media, whether they know it or not, first or cemented the decline in public trust by siding with the government over every COVID response. Uh, was there even one critical question? I wanted to puke when I heard the cliche continually repeated by our leaders that we were all in this together. Come on. MPs gave themselves raises, in, or three raises actually, in two years. And it's so outrageous to suggest that they had the same living condition as low-income Canadians, or they had the same options. Most times, and it wasn't for any nefarious reason. They didn't even take into account the impact of COVID restrictions. As Dr. Francis Collins, who's the head of the National Institute of Health, admitted a couple of weeks ago, they never considered the impact of lockdowns or school closures, other restrictions on low-income families, people battling addiction, the impact of isolating people with intellectual disabilities. <laughs> when it came to financial aid, only 14 cents out of every dollar went to the lowest 20% of income earners. 
Hey, when central banks push interest rates to record low, assets went up. Who do you think own assets? Well, it's not lower income people. I got lots more examples, but you get the point. But it goes far beyond that. And it's fueled by an attitude that says, we know best. We're more virtuous, smarter, and wiser. You know, as P.J. O'Rourke put it, the principal feature of liberalism is sanctimoniousness. By loudly denouncing all bad things, war, hunger, date rape, liberals testify to their own terrific goodness. More important, they promote themselves to membership in a self-selecting elite of those who care deeply about such things. It's a kind of naturalist aristocracy. And the wonderful thing is that you don't have to be brave, smart, strong, or even lucky to join it. You just have to be liberal. And then you probably have to attend the World Economic Conference. Hey, look, I know, if you're a regular listener to Money Talks, forgive me, but we've got to repeat that the overriding financial, economic, and political context of our time is declining confidence in government and establishment institutions like universities or the legacy media. And I guess the World Economic Forum is recognizing this with their theme, Rebuilding Trust. But they should note the response. Instead of engaging, instead of encouraging dialogue, respecting other points of view, they denigrate people who disagree. They call them names. Come on, Trucker's Convoy hadn't even started before they were called misogynists, white supremacists. Hillary Clinton's famous degenerates, everyone who disagrees with her. More importantly, though, instead of engaging with those who disagree, they push more restrictions on individual freedom. Restrictions on what car you can buy, what food you can eat, what you can post or read on social media, how much fertilizer farmers can use, what livestock they can keep. I mean, it's a long list in the name of, in this case, climate change and health. And they're not done yet. We are going to see a central bank digital currency. And as the former head of the IMF's China division, Eswar Prasad says, and he's at the WEF, he says, central bank digital currencies will be programmable in a way that will enable governments to dictate how, when, where, and what, and by whom they can be spent. Don't say you weren't warned. I always look forward to getting a chance to talking with Tony Greer. He founded TG Macro, I think it was August of 2016. You know, he created this independent research firm that's done very, very well. Because why? Well, he had 25 years in trading, major trading houses, and then 15 years of writing a daily newsletter. And he gets to put it into TG Macro, which you can find in the Morning Navigator. I'll give some details of that coming up. But what I find fascinating, and of course, has led Tony to a terrific track record, He looks at the fundamentals of the situation, the technicals, uh, behavioral analysis, all of that kind of stuff to come up with the information, the recommendations, the explanations for his institutional clients, as well as personal uh, people who personally subscribe. Tony, thanks for taking the time with us. Man, what a beautiful introduction, Mike. Can I hire you to do that for me every time (laughs) I get introduced somewhere? That was awesome. Thank you so much for having me. You're a gentleman, and I love coming on your show and talking with you. Well, I'll tell you, this whole thing that I I just want to emphasize, because the background in trading itself, along with the analytical framework and the macro framework that you use, I think it's absolutely essential. I'm I'm not want to be overcritical of other people, but I just find sometimes it's really lacking in their analysis because they don't have any trading background. You know, and I sit there and I sort of mumble to myself, 
Well, you wouldn't be saying that if you'd had a few trades under your belt. Well, you've had more than a thousands of trades under your belt. So that's why I think it's so important. And we're getting great examples now where you get a narrative. And the narrative is, of course, we're into lower interest rates. You know, the market's sort of reflecting a thousand, no, I'm just going to, you know, six interest rate cuts. The Fed isn't saying that. It was already an about face. And one of the things I want to know from a trader also, though, or somebody who knows the markets, has the market already anticipated all that stuff? I mean, that's sort of been the conversation, you know, pick a time, nearly coming on two months now, and I think really entrenched over the last, say, five, six weeks. So I'm just wondering, okay, is that motivator, is that fuel for the, uh, for the stock market over or the fuel for the bond market over? Yeah, you know, that's a great question, Mike. Um, it's the question everyone that's trading the S&P is asking. And I think the way that I look at it is, it's, you know, you got to decide what your frame of reference on the market pivoting to, you know, from rate hikes to rate cuts is, right? And, you know, just because we may be over predicting six rate, you know, I agree with that sounds like a ridiculous amount of rate cuts next year. Um, but that's what the market is, you know, currently try to predict and price in. So, yeah, that's that's out there. But what's more important for me is that we just recently and very kind of abruptly, I would say, went from, you know, an extremely quick tightening period where, you know, there was a huge magnitude move in Fed funds from, you know, zero to 525 basis points. Um, and most importantly, we just went through a year where the S&P, you know, had a lot, a lot of turbulence, right? And a lot of, you know, a lot of struggles in, in certain times. And that was due to the inflation risk, right? The market was unable to break free last year because the high inflation risk was still there. Yeah. Right. And then we got to November 14th of 2023 when we got the October CPI number. And that number was, I don't know, the expectation was for 0.3, it was 0.2 or whatever it was. It was, you know, a tick within a tick of inline. And it was one of the most explosive macro days that I've seen in my career. Right. So what, why was it so explosive? It was because we got a benign CPI number, right. In line and the market moved like that. And like the rookies are like, what the hell just happened? You know? And the veterans are saying the bond market just decided something. Hmm. It's, it's, it's not about the magnitude. It's not about whether that was a big miss, a big hit, a big whatever. There was a decision that the market made that day. So what did we see that day? We saw two sigma moves all over the tape, right? There was a two sigma dump in the dollar. There was a two sigma rally in treasuries. So rates tanked, right? Which is what tanked the dollar. And in the equity market, there were 17 sectors that had two sigma breakouts, including the S&P, which ripped through moving average resistance and closed on its highs, right? So if you've been watching the tape for many years, that day literally knocked you out of your chair, yeah. right? The, the market response. And so that that's like getting around to my point is where that was the beginning of the market saying, okay, bond market dislocations, not an issue. Inflation, not coming back. And remember in the backdrop now, we just had oil prices tank from 95 to 70. We just had natural gas collapse again, right? From the highs, uh, we just had base metals roll over and all of these deflationary things happen. 
So now the bond market's looking forward and saying, oh, I see the commodity tape going down. Now forget the, the, the risk of an inflation bomb, right? So now the bond market goes back to kind of normal marching orders. It can rally a little bit, not expecting so much inflation. Stock market loves it. Yeah. What, is this, what does the stock market see? The high in rates is in the rearview mirror, baby. And that's it. That's all it needs to see. The high in rates is in the rearview mirror. And going forward, six rate cuts, forget that. Like the reality is probably that we're going to have these inflation spouts that I call them, where they're going to be little minor controllable surprises on the upside in some inflation data. Because we've still got politically structural inflation, right? Mm-hmm. More, more or less. So that's the layout that I'm looking at. And, you know, I mean, I'm extremely bullish stocks. I wrote on that day um, after that after that close, I said, stop what you're doing. The market has spoken. Yep. Drop everything and buy stocks. So that was the middle of November. And now we're making a new high for the move. So I'm really, really happy and gaining a little bit of confidence that you know, that, that we may have it right for now, that this waterfall is not coming and we're kind of just off to the races and the recession bros are going to be really, really upset about it. Well, a couple of things there that I just want people to note what a professional does. And they do, they look at the market. The market told you that, you know, you said, here's the scenario. Look at my measures. Oh, okay. Green light. I mean, you were looking for certain things. What was the market reaction within that? And I would assume, because I'm still watching the bond market make progress you know, that rates are falling, as you just said, sorry, put it that way, it's better. So ergo, it's not all priced in yet, because that would be my next worry that, okay, am I late to the party? You're getting those questions, I'm getting those questions. I sort of get it, but am I late to the party? And I go, well, I'd look at just a couple of indicators, and it's so clear that's how you approach, that you have a series of indicators that will give you the answer to that. Mike, let me ask you this. Are you late to the party? Let's see. It's January 19th, right? So we've got, we're almost through one month of 12 months. The S&P is basically up a couple of basis points. You know, um, the NASDAQ is up two and a half percent on the year. I don't know. Where could the NASDAQ go if rates fall for the majority of the year and are steady for the minority of the year? Mm-hmm. Yeah, starting I mean, uh, from a starting point of this is January and they're up two percent. I don't know. Could the Nasdaq go up thirty percent this year? Hell yeah! Yeah, well, especially with um, what I don't know. I haven't seen the latest number. It was there eight trillion, nine trillion dollars? You know, who've been sitting on the uh, you know and doing well in the money market funds or or some of those bonds. You know, you watch that shift. I mean, I'm I'm, I'm always simplistic that way. You know, I always follow the money. Where's it going to go? So obviously, as, I, as you say, it's almost like a bell got rung and more and more people are hearing it, you know, that, that money's moving out of that side. And there's, uh, there's a lot of fuel left to go if it wants to go. Oh, I love that you draw a circle around that, you know, $8 trillion gorilla in the yeah. room, right? Because it's a big number. And I'm not sure. Is that the right number? What is it? How, how much money is there? What was it? Was that the right number? I thought it was 8.6, but you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is it T or B? I forget. I mean, no, I no. It's, it's a trillion. It's it trillion. is trillion, right. Yeah. So I, I'm just saying like, uh, you know, that's important because as you said, like, you know, NVIDIA is up 15% this year already, right? NASDAQ's up 2.5%. There are some sectors that are cooking like uranium and cannabis and things like that up 15 to 20%. You know, now you get to the end of the first quarter and you take a look at where all your money is planted and you're like, oh, cool. I still got these two-year notes from last year, you know, at 5%. That deal is gone, right? Because the rates are lower. 
okay, what do I want to do with that money now, now that all of this stuff in the markets is up huge, right? Yeah. And there's still three quarters left to play in the year. It's like, okay, let's get some money out of the freaking market and put it, you know, let's get in the NASDAQ. Let's buy some NVIDIA. And that's, we haven't even seen that yet. No, I think that's a terrific point because we forget that there's money maturing and now what they're maturing into isn't near as attractive. Plus, though, it's against a backdrop of a positive uh, stock market move and, and, and some other things, but positive stock market. I mean, that's enticing alone for people. So that, let me, let me I, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm all over the map a little bit here. Uh, go I ahead. One, well, yeah, I just have one more point that I wanted to add there, Mike, because there's a part of the psychology that's really important to me. Um, and it fits right with the timing that we're talking about now. So sorry to interrupt. But what's important to me about the psychology is where the market is flat on the year, you know, up a couple percent, maybe the stock market was underwater for the majority of last year. And with the record-breaking pace that the Russell went from the low to the high and the record-breaking pace that the uh, equal weight S&P went from the low to the high, that's when everybody got their money back last year, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And so now they're coming into the beginning of the year and they're sitting up, their chair in, up in their chairs rubbing their hands together and saying, okay, baby, we're playing ball again in the stock market, right? We got last year's divot back. We're cruising into this year with momentum. Let's take some of this money out of the 5% two-year notes and, and, and join the rest of our market in the stock market, our portfolio in the stock market. So that's, that's the thing that I see coming at some point down the road. So sorry to interrupt you. No, there. not at all. I mean, and I know with the, uh, the Morning Navigator, which I still can't believe you do it every morning, but <laughs> the Morning Navigator, right. you've been sort of chronicling. And, you, and right from the get-go, though, as they say, the day that you, know, you had this shift in mid-November, you, know, you didn't wait. You said you know, stock time. But the other thing you said is I'm watching the two-year note to see how it's reacting. It will be one of, one of my indicators, uh, you know, to say, has that move in the interest rates sort of been completely uh, processed through in the markets? And as you said, and if you've been saying, no, it hasn't yet. Just look, I don't have to have an opinion. Just look at the damn market. Right. Exactly. Exactly. So that, you know, when I see 17 sectors have a two sigma breakout in one day, when on any given day, there's maybe, maybe a couple of stocks that have a two mm -hmm. sigma move and maybe one or two sectors. And that day there's, you know, that, that to me is how I do the math and say, okay, got the message you're sending to the markets. So now, you know, the, the careful um, part is, you, so you're correct in that, you know, we may be in for some bond market volatility where rates can, you know, retrace higher on the charts and still be in this downtrend that we're expecting mm -hmm. them to be in and the stock market is expecting them to be in. So that's where you get into um, the situation where you've got to expect the, the, the stock move to be nonlinear. Yeah. Right. It's going to be another year of, you know, don't overstay your welcome in any sector because it's going to make you pay. Right. And yes, you can trade those breakouts, but don't think that they're going to go on forever through the end of the year and next year, et cetera. They're going to have a, po a point where everybody piles in and that's going to be the end of that trade. Right. And so it's going to be very, you know, you're going to have to be picky and choosy about the trades that you're in. And you're going to have to be careful about your timing if you want to be, you know, really long this S&P because there will be waterfalls along the way. Right. The market will get scared from bad, super bad economic data. The curve will steepen sharply. The VIX will respond and the S&P will get tagged for three or four days in a row. 
The other thing I sort of noticed within the market, though, that, and again, this is just, you know, you, you, my, I've been around a long, I've made enough mistakes to, to know something now, but, uh, you know, is that I don't hear, the reason I don't think it's sort of that frothy top is I'm not hearing a lot of talk about it. You know, I'm not hearing people, and you can appreciate, you know, having somewhat notoriety, people would come up to me. And there will be that time, and that will be one of my indicators. You know, hundred <laughs> percent. And I have I'm just interested. I just haven't seen that. You know, from a psychological point of view. You know, I I um I have respect for the people on FinTwit that put up the analogies to the dot com bubble and to the Great Financial Crisis, because Fed funds were falling while the stock market was tumbling out of the dot-com bubble and while the stock market was tumbling out of the great financial crisis. There's two things to, to, to think about there, right? Cause it really made me scratch my head. You know, I'm saying the stock market's way higher and we are about to lower rates. So is this another scenario? So the difference to me is two things. There was, there's no bubble, like you said, right now, like there was during the dot-com bubble when you walked into a bar and if you listened to every conversation around you, you heard ticker symbols, right? Every conversation, somebody was bobbing out there, whatever name they were getting rich on. And so we are not anything like that. We do have the beginning of an AI and crypto craze. So I think that's kind of an early stage um, type of a tailwind. Then there's the idea that interest rates were going down in response to what macro markets were doing, right? There were tremors in the macro markets and they were collapsing. So the Fed was saying, okay, hey, we're going to lower interest rates. We've got a mega problem on our hands. And remember, they're forward looking. They know what the problem is, right? So in those, both of those scenarios, it was the Fed saying, okay, we'll adjust to this bubble breaking and we'll adjust to this mortgage disaster that we created, right? By lowering rates. There's no mortgage leverage out there. There's there's no people with five spec homes with zero down, right? That that's, that that happened in 2006 and seven. That's why we had 2008, right? The banks, JP Morgan's trading at its highs. It looks like it's about to go to the moon. You know what I mean? Like I, I can't. I don't think that would be happening if there was all this huge, you know, mm-hmm. tremors of you know, uh, lending risk on their sheets. So, you know, that's why I think this time is different. And I, my analogy for this is 94, 95 where in 94, we raised rates to sort of slow down a hot economy and deal with some inflation. Stock market was down a percent and a half. Rates peaked in 94, and they were sideways to lower for five years. Not much lower, just sideways to lower Mm -hmm. for five years. And the stock market was up double digits for five years in a row, right? Right into the dot-com bubble. But to me, this feels more like that than it Mm -hmm. does at the peaks of 07 and, and double zero, something like that. So that's my look on that. Uh, at the risk of wading into uh, where it's a nightmare is politics. But of course, the Iowa caucuses, it's a presidential year. But I'm also looking at, you know, Donald Trump would be the presumptive favorite right now. Uh, and of course, the last time he was elected, it ushered in a pretty darn strong move in stocks, despite what the media would, was saying. If you remember, there was such a huge, we were all told if you got elected, all hell would break loose, and it did to the upside. <laughs> yeah, exactly, Mike. That was a that was an amazing event to trade through because I was it was getting telegraphed that he was going to win. The stock market was tumbling, right? And you we we were saying like you know I'm, uh, during the 
going into that, I'm talking with my friends and people in the market were like, do you know how bullish this is for the stock market? If Donald freaking Trump gets elected like this lunatic, right? This is going to be berserk. So anyway, knowing that in mind and the market's going off, like coming off like a prom dress while, yeah. you know, it's being telegraphed that he's winning and you're looking at it and you're like, dude, this is like George Soros and, or like, you know, all these like hardcore liberal fund managers, like putting shorts on thinking that's the end of the Republic. And so we got people to buy into it. That's an early call. One of the first calls that I ever made for TG macro was this dip is buy. And um, so now looking forward, I mean, the Chinese stock market collapsed yeah. right in, 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 into the Iowa caucus and, and it's still going right. So there's to me a telegraph of a potential, you know, Trump win. the market's breaking out to new highs here, not coincidentally in the week of the Iowa caucus where, you know, mm-hmm. he buried every County there. And think of how about that, how bullish that could be for the stock market if he sort of repairs the U.S. economy from this point. You know, he's got a lot to deal with. Who knows if he actually wins and who knows if he carries out his promises, you know, trying not to be too political here and how he does yeah. it. But the market perception is going to be extremely bullish because, like, you know, he just got the nod from Jamie Dimon, who said, you know, at, in Davos, like, yeah, you know, the market was did pretty good. You know, gas prices were cheap. There was no inflation, et cetera, et cetera. So that endorsement is, uh, I think, something that's kind of ringing through the markets. It really is. So that's how I look at that potential and why I want to stay long into more visibility of the 2024 election, if that's fair. I don't want to let you go without, uh, and, and I want to tell people, uh, Tony was going to be with us at the World Outlook Conference, but uh, a more important, and I know it was more important, family obligation uh, has to be met, and that's why he's so kind to give us the time. But we're also going to have a visit after, only for exclusively for the people who attend to get an update, as you, as you just said. Look at the volatility in these markets, uh, you know, in, out all about you've got to have your wits about you so i'm looking forward to that too but i don't want to let you go without talking gold for a second or, or maybe i'll come back to what you said right at the outset in your theme is you're looking for a weak a stronger stock weaker dollar right you weaker us dollar where does that st- uh, fit for gold for you okay so just to backtrack one step you know my idea is ooh, sorry my idea is that rates are going to back off we saw last year we saw rising rates and a rallying dollar i kind of think that that can kind of logically come undone right the dollar mm-hmm. index can fall go back where it came from i feel like gold is set up to have a good year you know we punched through those uh that all time that high of 2080 right that flat top that we had traded up to 2135 and the low since then has been all the way back down to 2000 right and gold could have been written off for dead down there and it's still str- trying to street fight really well in my opinion in terms of mm-hmm. price action so I think the breakout could have done better, right? Unfortunately, we put in three lower highs since we put in the 2135 peak. And, you know, you never want to see a market blatantly reject all-time highs, right? Because then that's due for a tumble. And, you know, if I'm bullish and there's a lot of other bulls out there, then there's probably room for gold to back off if it gets black-eyed like that, which you always mm-hmm. say when it tries to stick its, eye, stick its chest out into a new range. And the market comes and says, no, it's not time to go yet. Right. So we'll see what happens this year. But I think gold is set up to have a good year with the rate pivot, interest rates going lower. Right. It really struggled while rates were rallying. Now, with rates going lower, to me, I think uh, gold and Bitcoin are set up to perform pretty well this year and uh, probably not outpace each other, but kind of rally somehow in tandem. 
um, and which seems to be the way they kind of looks like what they want to do to me so far this year. And that's just kind of an early um, tape readers impression that I'm getting, if that's fair. Well, it's always, uh, you know, a bit unfair of the question in that you clearly are looking at the market, you have your indicators, and you will respond to those indicators. And I'm asking questions that we can't anticipate what those market moves. So I want to always make sure people, why do you think he does it daily, for goodness sakes? <laughs> you yeah. know, there's that much activity there. Uh, yeah. So I still look, at, when I see that scenario, and let's say gold doesn't have the strength right now, but dip, ba- uh, backs off, you see, for someone like me, more, more an investor, I see that as an opportunity. I mean, uh, I haven't give, been given an indication that that's the end of any gold move. It just isn't right now, as you said. So I have a tendency just personally to sort of buy those dips. I think that that's how the market will probably be looking at it as well. You know, we've seen, we've seen and heard a lot over the last year about central bank buying, yeah. right? Which makes all the sense in the world to me, right? If we are seeing foreign central bank selling of U.S. treasuries, they're taking dollars in return and they're going to go do something with those because they don't want to be standing there left holding the bag with the dollars, right? So it seems like that's the flow that we saw last year. And now I feel like, you know, the flow, nothing has changed with that scenario for central banks to want to replace the treasuries on their balance sheet with gold, right? That scenario is still alive and kicking. So I think that I agree with you that gold is going to hold its value as it has been, in my opinion. I mean, gold has done fine. Um, while you try not to tag yourself to your kind of gold P&L, you know, for me, it's yeah. much more of a, uh, you know, monetary insurance type of play than a, than a trade, yeah. right? It's not, it's not the kind of trade that I, I generally put on, and I'm not in it at the moment. But um, actually, I am still in it at the moment. That's not fair to say as a trade. But um, either way, I think it's going to hang in there just fine. I think the downside is limited, especially if rates peaked and the demand seems fine. If we, if we get pickup in physical demand, God forbid, out of India – Man, that would be tremendous. So we'll see what happens. Well, that gives a great flavor of why and, and, and how thankful we are that you'll take the time after the World Outlook Conference for the attendees there to be able to review all of these markets. And so if you go to the World Outlook Conference, be assured, Tony and I will be doing a special exclusive Zoom after that and we'll address these things. It's a few weeks out, you know, we'll give it a, a few weeks and then we'll come back and we'll review these markets. So again, the World Outlook Conference. We'll get Tony back out here live uh, next year. So we're looking forward to that already. Uh, and by the way, his performance last year, his, his presentation, it's a better way of putting it, uh, was incredibly popular. You know, we got all the feedback. We, have, we do it officially. We get surveys, that kind of stuff. Incredibly popular for good reason, as you can tell just from our chat here. But in the meantime, I'm going to put this up uh, and we'll send it out in our email blast, in our social media, where to get a hold of them. But it's T G macro you know and it's the daily navigator you know which is which is great stuff just great stuff and by the way tony i always and i give you credit for it but i always take a couple of those quotes that you 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 include you know at the end which you know as you say your education i love it uh as i say uh, great stuff and uh, really know how much we appreciate you finding time today Oh, Mike, thanks so much. And I just wanted to tell you how, you know, I'm I'm so disappointed that I'm not able to be at the World Outlook Conference. I had a tremendous experience at it last year and I didn't want to miss it, but I'm hoping that we can recontinue a string starting next year. Um, there should be nothing in the way of it and we should be good to go. I can't wait to come back. And with that, I'm going to make sure that I put forth, 
you know, a little bit of extra elbow grease into whatever presentation we are going to give after that so that at least I can make a hopefully good showing after the fact and uh, save face somehow. Oh, no, you don't need to do that. But brilliant last year. Thank you for taking the time as always. Thanks so much, Mike. I love coming on the show. You're the absolute best. Andrew Ruland here from Integrated Wealth Management. In our recent webinar called Where Do We Go From Here, we covered a lot of ground, including the importance of the May 7th Armstrong Economic Confidence Model date, future growth opportunities and equities, the effects of proposed changes to capital gains taxation, the path of inflation and interest rates, and the outlook for precious metals and oil stocks. Fortunately, things have been unfolding according to our outlook. But it's not about being right. It's about getting it right for clients. Our portfolio teams are practical and prudent. We turn independent research and leading-edge forecasting models into lower-stress portfolios that help preserve and grow the purchasing power of your nest egg, come what may. You can watch our recent webinar, learn more about how we work with clients, and request a complimentary consultation by visiting integratedwealthmanagement.ca. That's integratedwealthmanagement.ca. Time now for the quote of the week, a quote that focuses on what many investment legends say is the foundation of risk management and significantly better decision making and entails a characteristic, I'm sorry to say, is completely absent when you look at political decision making. I'm talking about humility. As the fine financial analyst, market analyst, Lynn Alden, author of the new bestseller, Broken Money, puts it, I can't imagine a more important trait in an investor than humility the mindset of approaching everything as a learner. Let me add the thoughts of Peter Bernstein, economist, financial historian. He says in quotes, humility is an enormously important quality. You can't win without it. Survival in the end is where the winners are by definition and survival begins with humility. And finally, a word from legendary investor Howard Marks who states, it's very important to ask, what if I'm wrong? What if things don't go the way I expect? What would the consequences be? As I said, the hubris and the arrogance that is relentlessly on display in politics has gone to such a degree that even questioning their decisions, questioning their narrative is not allowed. And it comes with severe consequences. Well, I don't want you to make the same mistake when you approach the investment markets. These are the things you should be asking. I mean, there's so many factors that play into a, you know, play a role in creating bad decisions, whether it's politicians or investors. But lack of humility, or putting it another way, the hubris to not even entertain the possibility that we're wrong plays a huge part. As Mark Twain famously said, it ain't what you don't know that gets you in trouble. It's what you know for sure that just ain't so. And as I say, I can't get over this because the key characteristic of government decision-making on the most important issues is the failure to acknowledge risk. So you go ahead and you support your political heroes, whatever party you want to support. And I'm telling you, the level of hubris, the lack of humility is producing what they like to euphemistically call unintended consequences. Here, I've got one though. Oak Tree Capital's Howard Mark does offer a different approach that we could adopt. So should our, our uh, politicians. One that would you know, benefit all of us. No one ever got in trouble by starting a statement with, I don't know, but, or I could be wrong, but if we admit to uncertainty, we will investigate before we make a decision, double check our conclusions and proceed with caution. 
We got the latest inflation numbers this week. We got December, but we also want to look at the trends that are happening there. So I want to bring in Mike Levy at this point. Mike, I would think I think it's safe to say there was sort of some level like of an expectation of what we got, but it's not the level of sort of good news in fighting inflation that people were hoping for. No, it's not, Mike. CPI rose. <laughs> Pardon me, at an annual pace of 3.4% in December. That's up from 3.1% in November. That's certainly not taking pressure off. It's putting pressure on. In particular, though, Mike, housing prices and the, and the cost of rent continue to be a real source of inflation strain or financial strain, rising 6% housing prices from a year earlier, and rents are doing exactly the same thing. They are going up so significantly. There's such a shortage of supply. And the third thing that I got out of the inflation is what you talk about all the time. Core inflation is also so troubling. The three-month annualized change for that indicator is up 3.8%, much higher than the central bankers are comfortable with. So it's not really a good story. Yeah, I, I think that last one is what's worried some economists. You know, they look at that, the three-month trend, you know, one month fine, you know, sort of around expectations for sure for many economists. But that three-month trend is the one that's a little bit troublesome. And again, then the big debate starts is, does that mean a March rate cut is pushed forward, you know, is, or, or longer down the road? And it looks like the markets are saying that, Mike. When I was looking before those numbers were out, I think the market said about 50% chance of a March cut dropped to about a third. Obviously, we still have more data to get. We'll get more data, you know, coming up, uh, you know, in February, et cetera. So the story can change. But that three-month figure is the one that seems to be worrying people. It is, Mike. And uh, the other thing I'm looking at, <clears throat> pardon me, is wage growth, which has just been outpacing inflation for an extended period, and then you add in tumbling productivity, and the combination of all that makes it extraordinarily difficult for the Bank of Canada cutting interest rates anytime soon. But, you know, just going sideways for a second, Mike, and I think I, we, we want to discuss this, one of, uh, not one of the most major problems, is stemming from housing. Yeah, I think you look at the huge percentage. Last number I saw was something like 73% of the inflation was housing related. But keep in mind, food's still up 4.7%. You know, I mean, that's that, that I'm just talking about people's pocketbooks at this point. But yeah, uh, but the other thing, Mike, and it of course reflects in housing, is the mortgage costs play another huge part, you know, the increase in mortgage rates. And it's about, I think, I think the Bank of Canada's interest increases interest rate increases are about 28% of the problem. My point is only it's complicated, but we're sort of shooting ourselves in a foot a little bit with some of the policies of the bank. Without them doing that, we'd have lower inflation probably into their target. So you sort of start shaking your head. No wonder consumers are confused. And, you know, going further on that, Mike, as of October 1st, there were roughly, catch the number, two and a half million temporary residents in Canada. That's an increase of 310,000 in just three months. And National Bank Financial in a report, and this is so prescient, Canada's caught in a population trap. And that has been usually the preserve of emerging economies. We lack the infrastructure and capital stock in this country to adequately absorb current population growth and improve our standard of living. Avery Shenfield, how the government is handling the immigration file, same thing. All he's doing is parroting what uh, National Bank Financial is saying. And, and as of October 1st, Mike, there were roughly 2.5 million temporary residents in Canada, an increase of more than 310,000 in just three months. 
So we've opened yeah. the floodgates and there's nowhere to put these people. Yeah, absolutely. The, the lack of infrastructure, and it, it is that, that dilemma. We need the people. You know, birth rates are at 1.4, should be 2.1 to maintain the population. We need the people. What I find astounding is there was no preparation. They raised the, the uh, immigration levels. They didn't know how many were coming in on temporary visas. We were talking about that as early as their first announcement on that in October of 2020. Okay, so where are you going to put the housing? Where are you going to put other things? And as you say, we don't, you know, we've got jobs, but are they the right jobs for these people? We used to have this sort of point system. That's a big issue, and I shouldn't get into it because immigration is a huge issue about how we're handling it. Yeah, we do need the numbers, and yet I just don't see any preparation, and it's get reflecting in the rental market, direct correlation here. No wonder inflation's still up. And I've got to say, Mike, that 310000 in just three months, do you want to know the last time we increased our population in a 90-day period like that? Well, this is a really fun fact. That's when Newfoundland joined Canada. That's the last time we had that kind of an increase. And uh, Newfoundland, um, Canada's population was 13,500,000 back in 1949. Of the 618,000 people we added, 350,000 came from Newfoundland. Uh, And the fact is, Mike, when they came, they came with their own housing. There wasn't a housing shortage. (laughs) Well, as I say, this is a huge social issue, huge financial issue. You know, uh, there's a lot of ramifications. uh, And I'm glad you alluded to the banks because they all agree this has not been a file that's been handled because we did not anticipate. There's no excuse not to have anticipated the infrastructure we needed. Mike, thanks for taking the time. Good stuff. Thanks, Mike. Have a great week. You know, one of the big markets that we've been talking about, of course, on Money Talks in this commodity sphere, though, is copper. I mean, you've got all sorts of things happening in it, but nothing less than the electric vehicle revolution, the renewable energy revolution. And that's what spurred, I think, Gary Nagel. He's the Glencore CEO saying, in quotes, there's a huge deficit coming in copper. And as much as people write about it, the price not yet reflecting it. That's why I'm pleased to have with me right now Claudia Tornquist. She's the president, CEO, director of Kodiak Copper. Claudia, thanks for taking the time with us. Thanks for inviting me. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, when you look out and you look at just the broad copper market, and, uh, you know, first of all, am I right about the sort of inherent demand that's getting created by our push to electric vehicles, I mean, copper component, you know, by our push to renewable energies, et cetera? Well, the world is electrifying. I think 80% of the world economy is now on a net zero emissions target. And no doubt this will create a lot of demand for copper because it's not only the electric vehicle and the new renewable energy. There's also all the transmission infrastructure, batteries, transmission lines, etc., that require a lot of copper. And really, this is a mega trend. This is around the world, um, every country. And no doubt, this will create a lot of demand for copper for years, if not decades to come. Yeah, I saw an interesting uh, note by Brandon Bailo. He's the CEO of the Foundation Fund. And he said, uh, it's just the way, you know, quantifying. He says, you know, in all of human history, we'd produce something like 700 million tons of copper. But if we're going to get to net zero by 2050, we need to double that. We need to be something like 1.4, 1.5 tons over the next 27 years. I mean, that's doubling of all production in human history. 
I mean, obviously that's a huge opportunity for a Kodiak copper, but uh, again, do you see there's any sort of acknowledgement of that? I mean, people are, some people are very keen on that renewable or that electrical grid expansion, that kind of thing, but not with the commensurate building out. I mean, you guys are building out, but you know, do you see that happening? Well, if you look over the last decade or so, there was very little exploration yeah. because commodity prices were weak and very little discovery. So we are now at this stage at a point where there aren't many discoveries, many new mines in the pipeline, yet we are facing a very strong demand situation. So I would argue there's no better time to be in copper, invest in copper, exploring copper like Kodiak does at, at, as the current moment. Well, tell me a little bit about Kodiak, because as you say, that's what you're doing. I mean, you're putting, you know, the money where the mouth is with Kodiak Copper. So tell us a little bit about you, how you guys are sort of taking advantage or looking to take advantage of that dearth of, uh, you know, mining that's been going on. Well, Kodiak is a copper porphyry exploration company focused on North America. It's been founded by Chris Taylor, who many of your guests will know from his uh, previous company, our sister company, Great Bear, which was a yeah. massive discovery success. And Kodiak's main project is a project called MPD in Southern British Columbia. And it's a three hours drive from, from Vancouver in a mining region. And uh, we made a high-grade discovery there called the Gate Zone. At, that was in 2020 and have since been very busy drilling. Last year, we drilled 18,000 meters, more than 18,000 meters, so big drill program with the aim to expanding on our discovery and really um, creating critical mass, showing that this is a major copper project. How easy is it to do it? I mean, that's the other side. I mean, you're on the ground. It's one thing for me to read about stuff. It's another for you to be experiencing it. Let me just start with, and again, you know, I know it's sort of oversimplification to say, but what is it like being in that business in British Columbia? Because I could talk to many people, not necessarily in the copper side or, or someone who's got a proven reserve, et cetera, like you do, but they, let's put it this way. They say it ain't that easy. And, and yet there seem to be some improvements in that way. So just tell us, you know, right in the ground, how easy is it to kind of uh, do your project? Well, for us, the experience in British Columbia has so far been excellent. Good. There, um, British Columbia is a safe, secure um, jurisdiction where you have many where you don't have many risks that you have in many of the other copper jurisdictions like Africa, like South America. So it's a good place to work. And um, it has been in the past sometimes bureaucratic and permits take long, etc. But I have to say, there's a lot of political will to, to support commodities at this time. And we can definitely see the effect on the ground. We haven't had any difficulties getting our permits. And it's been a real pleasure working where we are. Well, that, that is a positive because uh, we know that's not the case in every jurisdiction, you know, throughout the world. And the other side that you mentioned, but it is a positive for Canada. And that is geopolitical or the risk, uh, you know, sort of the not the political risk, well, as well as though, 
you know, turmoil, all sorts of other threats, you know, that aren't necessarily directly to do with the mine, although they could be. You look at South America in some instances, but, uh, you know, that's a, another key that I hear from people in the industry. You've got to make sure you need, you know, you spend all this money, you've got all this, you know, opportunity, you hire people, and then maybe some geopolitical risk comes walking in the door. Yeah. And I can certainly say from investors um, that I hear that they really like Canada, they really like British Columbia. And um, the example of, of First Quantum and Cobra Panama, yes. it's a, a good example that just highlights the risk that um, some companies face. I mean, that was the 10th largest copper mine in the world, well, still is, and just got shut down by the government in Panama, just like that, after millions or billions of yep. investment. And yeah, that just sort of highlights the risks some companies face. And yeah, BC really um, is a place where you can be sure that you own the mine that you build and you don't face risks like that. Well, and I'm sure every major investor is aware of that kind of risk. But then when you see it play out, and this is something that I'm not sure everybody understands, that this was a monster copper producer, monster copper mine, and the Panamanian government just, oh, you're not operating anymore. I mean, I can't think of a bigger nightmare scenario for people working, of course, in the company, but individual investors, I mean, poof, it's gone. And I, I'm still not sure people believe that was possible, say, six months before they shut it down. I, I would have been in that, surely they're not going to kind of camp myself. And I think this has brought that risk to the forefront like crazy, you know, I mean, it's, it's a neon flashing neon light. So that's why I think it's an opportunity for Canada that you're experiencing directly, you know, by having more, a much, obviously, obviously a much more smooth sailing. Uh, tell me how long it takes to get something together though. That's the other thing. We know the demand, if we're going to do EVs, we're going to do the grid, all of this stuff, but how fast, you know, can you get something, discover it, prove it up, investors, production, <laughs> you know, uh, how, what would you, if you had to just guess, and I know that's another one where it well, depends what jurisdiction you're in, but maybe yeah. give us some background that you can there. Well, copper mines are, the vast majority of them, big mines, which means it takes many years to build on average from discovery to a mine that's operating 20 years. And that makes it even more important that um, in the last 10 years there was no big discovery because we know already now in the next 10 years there will not be a big mine being built. So yeah, copper projects are big beasts, big projects, big mines and take long to build. And um, from our perspective as Kodiak, that's why we like copper. That's why we're exploring for porphyries because the price is a big one if you're successful. When um, now are you partnering with anybody? I mean, because that's the other thing is is you're in such a great area that's had proven success. Um, tell us a little bit about the company that way, because of course, uh, you know you've got to finance. Besides all these other obstacles, not an easy job, I guess. I'm spelling out here. <laughs> <You know? laughs> well, we are in a mining area, and there are two large mines next to us. One of them is Tech Resources mm -hmm. Highland Valley Copper Mine. It's a copper mine that's been producing for decades. And Tech is also Kodiak's largest shareholder. They hold 9.9% of our share capital and are a fantastic partner. And obviously, the fact that Tech invested, and in fact, 
fact, they have since followed up their investment several times and have invested three times in total over the last three years. Um, that gives a lot of investors confidence um, that our project has the potential we believe it has. Yeah, I don't think it's a stretch to say they did some due diligence, you know. <laughs> um, but again, I, I, I'm looking forward to it because you're speaking at the World Outlook Conference. And this is, a, again, an area that we have outlined on Money Talks, the opportunity, the one that you've just described in, in several aspects, though, the global demand, the uh, demand that's built in, in the kind of goals that we have in terms of electrification, the grid, the EVs, all of that kind of stuff, the batteries, you know, copper is going to be, you know, it's just such an incredibly important component of that. And uh, I, I think people should take advantage of it. You're going to be speaking at the World Outlook Conference. Go and get the lowdown, especially on what the opportunity is, what Kodiak's doing too, which you've done a good job of describing, but that whole thing. So, Claudia, I want to thank you for just taking the time today, but I look forward to seeing you at the World Outlook Conference too. Likewise, looking forward to the conference. Of course, everybody knows because I've beaten it into them. It's February 2nd and 3rd. You just go to mikesmoneytalks.ca and get the tickets. Time now for the shocking stat of the week. Let's talk taxation or the implications of it, the consequences of it. One of the great old lines in the tax field is that higher taxes don't redistribute income, they redistribute taxpayers. Well, I've got a tremendous example. I'm looking at the state of California and what's been happening there in 2023, but it's the seventh annual year in decline. California, high tax jurisdiction. It lost 187,000 residents last year. As I say, seventh straight decline. And that brings that seven-year total up to about 1.3 million people leaving California. The year before, in 2022, well, about 415,000 left the state. Now, to put that in perspective, even when you had the 2008 financial crisis, I think their biggest annual loss was like 125,000 residents. So they're going way above those kinds of numbers. And maybe not a surprise. Where are those people going? Well, if you were going to so give me a low tax situation, well, you go to Florida. Florida's gained 450,000 residents since the pandemic. Texas, another one. Texas has gained 340,000. In other words, the population is literally shifting. I mean, the California situation has got tons of publicity. Why? Because you look at the U-Haul rates. If you're leaving the state, maybe going to Austin, Texas or Houston, Texas, the U-Haul rate is huge. If you're coming the other way, it's about a third of that. So again, so many ways you're measuring this. But here's the problem. The problem is that, of course, the state debt doesn't change. The number of residents working toward it does, though. You know, the per capita debt changes. They've got a huge unfunded pension liabilities. The exodus doesn't help. But we're seeing it, as I say, in spades. And it's not just California, by the way. New York has also seen this mass exodus, losing over 300,000 residents. And again, maybe that's part of the you-can-work-from-home kind of revolution. And people are looking, saying, hey, I can transfer. I don't even have to lose my job or change my job. Maybe I can get a better lifestyle. I can certainly get lower taxes. And then again, the knock-on effect on that well, you've got a commercial real estate crisis going on in many of the big urban centers like New York. So bottom line is this. Hey, when you raise taxes and you become uncompetitive, there are definitely consequences. 
There's so much that goes on in the real estate file, the home file, the apartment file. It's unbelievable. That's why I'm so happy to have Ozzy Jurek with us every week. You can find him at ozbuzz.ca. Ozzy, sorry, I'm just going to be firing things left and right because that's what it must feel like you. You have to field so many different things that are going on. And I'll just start with a real straightforward one. CMHC came out and said, we had a decline in housing starts in 2023. And all I'm pointing that out for is, it's absolutely the opposite of what government wants to have happen. We've seen, uh, I also saw a study this week that the correlation between the population growth and the push upwards in rents was direct. I mean, it looked like you were looking at the same line, you know, going straight up. I mean, so obviously the relationship is strong. I just, there's just so much around that. I mean, they still haven't figured, you know, they're still talking about they're going to look at changing the temporary visas. Look at what have you been looking at it for three yeah. years, you know, yeah. and, and, and then the other minister will stand up and say, hey, we really care about affordability, you know, and then that's another thing that you've been following uh, very doing great work on Ozbuzz.ca is how governments say one thing and then talk out of the other side of their mouth. I was looking at, you know, some of the construction costs and Burnaby became the, the poster child for we can't afford to do it there. Well, it's funny. There's a property in Burnaby that was in 2020 is now $50 million more when they're going to get started on it. And so one of the councillors says, well, how come that our construction for residential projects, they can do it at $600 per square foot, while civic projects are costing in the ballpark of 1300 per square foot or double the amount, right? And so, and, and in fact, it, it was said in the council meeting that it's not the only project in Burnaby that faces challenges. Cost overruns have plagued the city for years. Well, I think that's the song most cities sing, and it's not all their fault. I mean, we put in more development, we need schools, we need more police, we need all of these other things too. We need to raise, raise and the taxes, which are not very popular, and so on and so on. But Burnaby has a problem. The costs have almost doubled. But we're seeing that problem ripple, uh, you know, in other areas of the problems. I mean, as you've told us, if the numbers don't work, the project doesn't go. And we're seeing, you know, what is really worrisome when you see a year like 2023, that's not pandemic. It is a rising interest rate environment, to be sure, that changes the numbers. But you see sort of a, a, a flat line to decline, you know, in many areas. And then you hear stories like that. And you hear about different uh, developers saying, putting projects further on hold or saying we're backing out completely. Well, this is the thing. Developer seems to be the ogre, or just like the homeowner right now. We're under attack. You don't want something that the cities of the world and the government say that we are to blame. You take a developer, do, do people think they have 60, 70 million dollars laying around? No, they need a construction loan for that. In order to get a construction loan, the bank says, thou shalt sell 60 to 70 percent of the building before he even give you the money. Well, the, the, the developer knows that about 20 to 30 percent of the buyers are going to be investors and they're looking for short term rentals. You look in, in Kelowna, for instance, right now, um, we have a, a British Columbia law that that has a short term rental uh, forbidden. And as of May 1, everybody is no longer allowed under certain rules to have the short term rentals. But everywhere else, you can still have the short term rentals, Mike, in your private residence. But guess what? Not in Kelowna. This week, they sat at the council table and said, well, this is really not good for us. We, uh, we want to disallow uh, short-term rentals 
uh, in all private residences as well. We grandfather about 400 of them that have, have a license. Now, Mike, I used to have five offices in Kelowna. It's a gorgeous place. It's lakes country. It's beautiful. It's winery. It's tourist country. So now what I'm going to do, all the tourists are going to come. There's no more private rentals. You know, what about the restaurants, the wine tours, the, 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 the wee beach? All of that thing is going to be affected by having less accommodation. Well, and uh, there's so much to this, and I know, and there's always a danger of oversimplifying, but I'm just thinking as someone who books vacation <laughs> rentals because I have a large family. <laughs> well, it's not as large as the Aussie Jurek clan when they take. <laughs> I think, Aussie, by the way, when your whole family comes, it's not called a vacation, it's called an yeah. invasion. <laughs> you know? yeah. But in my case, yeah. but seriously, am I going to go and book eight rooms in a hotel? You know, no, I'm not. Yeah. You know, and I need kitchen facilities. I need sort of rec room style facilities. You know, that, there's nothing there going to jump in and that's going to impact the tourist season. But your point is more, not more important, but more pertinent to what I'm saying, which is I was going to make an investment based on my ability to generate income, to justify right. that investment. You have now taken the number one income stream away. Ergo, I'm not investing there. And if someone well, came to me, Ozzy, that's what I'd be telling them. You know, I'd be saying, no, I can give you lots of other examples where you can get a much more consistent, uh, you know, income stream. Well, that's a simplistic view. You, you also had people at the council saying, look, I need the extra income because my mortgage is coming renewed. So in the face of $150 billion for the mortgage renewals this year and 350 next year, what we're going to say is you cannot be allowed to make some extra money to actually make the payments and be an honest, honorable citizen. I mean, it just... It's, it says, okay, if we pass this bylaw today, the councilman says, well, we can't change everybody who doesn't want to be a landlord, but there will be those who come into our city and make investments, really, you know. Yeah. And we just had a developer stop two high-rises in downtown Kelowna, maybe not because of this, but the, the business model just doesn't make sense for them. And so a lot of developers around, around the province and around in Canada are backing off on top of it we're having some real problems. In Langley, we have a developer went broke. In Victoria, a developer went broke. I mean, it's it's not a given that they're going to be filthy rich by building. It's very, very tight margins nowadays. And these kind of things like Kelowna is, is beyond me. Sorry, I, I've got to repeat what I said earlier, but I'm just still blown away that, you know, when it comes to the temporary visa situation that's finally been on the radar, something we've been talking about for over three years, but finally on the radar, the correlation to a higher rents and the government's considering capping the number of foreign <laughs> considering. I mean, I'm serious. And they're going to do the same with this. You know, we're going to have some real damage and real fallout because there isn't going to be the private sector investment to the housing stock that we need. A reminder to people that CMHC said over 10 years we needed 3.5 million additional units. Well, we're, I mean, we're not even we're so far away from the ballpark that becomes a, a punchline. You know, it's not happening. And and so, yeah, they'll reconsider after about three years of damage. I'm just astounded. I'm, I'm You can tell I'm very critical because I think that's justification. You know, really, what are you looking at? Can you wake up? Do you figure that people make investments because they want to return? Now you take their mainstream of income. Hence, they don't make that investment. You know, I mean, the, the relationship is not difficult to understand. No, it isn't. And the province now is coming out with a multi-billion dollar BC builds project. And that's exactly what you said. We're going to need the private sector uh, and build because we see with interest rates going up, a lot of projects are considerably on hold. They're already saying that, but they're also going to bring in the 10 
cities that are going to be on the naughty list, meaning they're not building enough. And like I said before, it is difficult for the city to come up with all the amenities at the same time and all the things that they have yeah. to do. Already our property taxes are going through the roof. So you made the point over and over again. We're being taxed on things we didn't even know what we, that we owned. You know, it's it's uh, it's not an, not an easy world, but it's not going to be easier by making these kind of rules. Well, I'll just finish with this because I see a lot of stuff where, where people say, well, there's no easy answer. It's complicated. I said, you know, that's because you didn't anticipate one of the most fundamental things going back three and four years. You announced record amount of immigration. You already knew at that point you had no clue what the temporary visas were. You know, you watch them set up shop, especially in Ontario, to what I'd call a visa factory under the guise of a, a post-secondary institution. You watched all that for three years. That's why it's difficult. It's sort of like a person who's at the 400-pound mark or, four, or, you know, 250 kilos, and they're going, yeah, it's not going to be easy to get down to 50 pounds, you know, or 120 <laughs> pounds or whatever it is. Yeah. No, it's not going to be easy. Ozzy, you do great stuff, though, and that's why people should uh, go on to ozbuzz.ca with the most popular price in history. That is free, but you've got to sign up. Go to ozbuzz.ca. You've got to put in your uh, email so they know where to send it, but it gives updates on all of this kind of stuff. And, and in the meantime, I want to thank you, for Ozzy, for taking the time. Always a great job. Thank you, Mike. And I just want to remind everybody, the Michael Campbell World Outlook Conference is, what, a couple of weeks away. And I'm going to have a very special presentation in where I do my usual forecast and my feeling that I have on what is going to happen to the real estate markets in, in Canada and the United States, but also some specific things that you can buy and some that you really should not buy. Ozzy, I know I'm not the only one who's looking forward to it. This is going to be great. Just a reminder, though, you can get tickets by going to mikesmoneytalks.ca. Mikesmoneytalks.ca, obviously click on the event button. Uh, you know, it's going to be a great weekend. It really is. I look forward to just chatting. It's sort of part social, economic, finance, all of that stuff. So look forward to seeing you there. Just go to mikesmoneytalks.ca. <laughs> I want to go live to the trading desk now. Victor Adair joins me. Vic, you can't say you're living in a dull time. I mean, you look at that market action as we well. Of course, I'm always saying this, but it's always true what's going on. So what have you picked up or what, what's the broad brush that you can share with us about what you've seen in the market's action? Well, if we go back to the last couple of months of the year, you know, the anticipation that the Fed was going to be cutting rates aggressively really drove what was the, the most important, if not the only thing that mattered in markets. And by markets, I mean stocks, bonds, currencies, gold, everything. And the, the, we had a terrific rally in the stock market. Uh, it was actually all one market. The stock market went up, bonds went up, gold went up, and foreign currencies went up against the U.S. dollar on the anticipation that the Fed was going to be cutting interest rates. Well, as we got into this year, that seemed to change a little bit, uh, where you know maybe we maybe we got too aggressive, you know, so that the the, the People started to price in maybe not quite so many cuts from the Fed. And we saw the U.S. dollar gain some ground. Gold was weaker. Bonds were weaker. And the stock markets kind of wobbled a little bit. But the stock market was really bifurcated. I mean, there was the small cap stocks and then there was the big cap stocks. And they were not, you know, they were not on the same page. And this week, we've seen that in spades. There's the, the big cap tech has just raced to the upside. And small cap is like, they're, they're so far back, you can't even see them. And that's what's confusing for people, not even the reason why, as much as if they're only following one group, like the small caps, 
They think, and it has been. It's been tough for a while. But if you're following, let's say you own NVIDIA in your portfolio, you think, man, we're still in that raging bull market. Well, you are in that stock, but you know what I mean? Like it's, there's, as you say, it's a bifurcated market. Well, I mean, you, you nailed it right there. It has been NVIDIA front and center and almost like nothing else matters. I mean, I've taken the view for some time that Microsoft was actually, you know, the key stock to what we call the, the Magnificent Seven. Microsoft has been making some new highs. But Microsoft looks like it didn't even get out of bed compared to what's happened in that <laughs> NVIDIA here. I mean, we are up, I think, Mike, and I, I tried to calculate that it just boggles my mind. We're up about 20% from where the stock ended at the end of the year. That turns out to be about $250 billion in market cap, just in NVIDIA, the gain since the end of last year. Uh, AI in general is, you know, the, the, the fascination with it is driving this market higher. And professional money managers, particularly like the, you know, uh, mutual funds and that sort of thing, they just cannot afford to be short in a market that's racing away to the upside like this. And can they afford not to have some of those all-star stocks? You know what I mean? You know, because at the end of the quarter, they're going to report and they say, these are our holdings. It might look bad if they don't. And we went through that phenomenon already, you know, but it looks like a continuation of it. You know, if you didn't own those big all-star seven, you know, you looked bad. And so I'm wondering if that won't fuel some more buying, if, if indeed they don't have enough exposure at this point. Well, you know, if you go back to the end of October, the stock market had trended lower for three months. There were people that were short in different things, uh, particularly what we call the trend-following community. But then as we had that tremendous rally in uh, November and December, those people, I think, had to have flipped and gone the other way. And and now it's, it's um, I mean, of course, you and I have got some history going back a few years. When I see the market rage to the upside like this, like, let's say, the NASDAQ did in uh, t- the year 2000, after a, a tremendous rally in 99, we raced away to the upside, uh, it, it hit it in March. And I think within two years, the NASDAQ was down about 80%. So certainly it's a, it's a one-way market right here. For me, if I'm not on board, I, I just can't chase it here because it's just, it's just too wild for me. Well, as Tony and I were saying, we don't see any of the same signs of that dot-com bubble, you know, where you'd get in a cab and you'd be in, informed by the, the person driving, might be Uber in this, in this case, talking about, or as he said, you go into a group and everyone's talking about how much money they've made. You know, in the dot-com, I was considering changing my name to Michael.com. You know, that kind of, well, do you remember stocks actually did that? The, yes. the stock would be whatever it was, bills mining yes. and concession, but literally on the Monday it was bill.com. And the stock would rise. I mean, I haven't seen any of that kind of stuff going on. So, uh, I, you know, it's obviously anything can happen, but uh, we may still have that phase to go through. There's one other side to this, and that has been um, the consumer. It looks like the consumer in the United States. Let's, let me start it this way. There's been people who believe we are going to have a recession whether they call it a soft landing or whatever, you know, and that maybe be the reason why the Fed was cutting rates. And, and I, I, I take the view that, you know, why the Fed cuts rates is way more important than when the Fed gets around to cutting rates. But right now, it looks like, Mike, the consumer is feeling strong. They believe that inflation is down, their wages are up, their job secure, there's lots of jobs to be had. And maybe the market is also rising here on the thought that, hey, if the economy is really strong, then corporate earnings are going to be really strong and away you go. 
Let me finish with one, what I call grain of, grain of salt, because I haven't thought this through. But I do wonder the difference between Canada and the U.S. And maybe one of the differences is that our most popular mortgage is a five-year mortgage. So we've got lots coming due, as we chronicle all the time with Aussie, 24, 25, 26. But the U.S. most prominent, by, by a huge margin, is 30 years. So despite the rises and that sharp rise, it didn't impact near as many homeowners because they weren't renewing their mortgage till 12 years later, you know, or something in that, that score. So I'm wondering if that didn't give them more confidence because I do see a difference between Canada and the U.S., but your point's well taken. I think the psychology has shifted and now is, hey, maybe soft landing, things aren't so bad. You know, as you say, listing those other things, my wages went up enough, those kind of things. So fascinating backdrop in the psychology of the market. Well, we're, we're certainly seeing existing home sales in the United States are the lowest they've been in a couple yep. of decades. And, of course, that's because if people are in there and they have a mortgage, they don't want to sell the place and then have to buy a new place at a much higher mortgage rate. But, you know, I looked it up, and there's only about 40% of homeowners in the United States who have a mortgage. Yes. And, by the way, the, the, the number is about the same in Canada. Only about 40% of people who own a place or have a place, call it, uh, have a mortgage on it. So, I, I, I mean, that 40% could be a big number, but... but no, it's a, a point well taken. We, we don't acknowledge that, again, another group that hasn't been impacted. You, you don't have a mortgage, you're not in debt in that way. That's a great point. Vic, I want to tell people to go to victoradare.ca, and there they can look at the charts. I'm sure you've got a busy, you're going to really be grinding it out this weekend, though, because there's been a lot happening. You know, there's been a lot happening, so you're going to be putting it out there, and I encourage people to go have a look at the charts and Victor's quick analysis on that as he prepares for the World Outlook Conference. And, again, uh, I'm sure you're busy with that because things are changing, things are moving, but uh, I look forward to hearing you talk there uh, at the World Outlook. Well, thanks, Mike. I've, <laughs> I've been trying to write my, my notes. That's what I want to say. But like every day, you've got to crumple them up and start over again because things are moving so fast. But, yeah, I look forward to seeing you and everybody else at the World Outlook Conference in February. VictorAdare.ca. Time now for this week's Goofy Award. Now, look, I make no bones about the fact that I'm a strong proponent of free speech. And for those that don't understand, besides my own personal freedom, there's a direct relationship between free speech, innovation, and economic growth. Restrictions on free speech are actually attacks, not only in our individual freedom, but our standard of living. And those attacks have been escalating, especially when it comes to government control of social media under the guise of stopping misinformation and disinformation. But what you have to notice is that proponents of restrictions never mention that governments are arguably the biggest disseminator of misinformation and disinformation, but they want to be the adjudicators of what can and can't be said. But to the Goofy Award, the saga and accompanying fame of Jordan Peterson have put him in the crosshairs of progressives, and he has happily retaliated. Given the politicization of free speech slash government regulation, come on, it's not a surprise to see support for the College of Psychologists of Ontario's punishment from the progressive left. They like that. The punishment entails Dr. Peterson taking social media retraining at his own expense with no clear guidelines, though, as to what the goals are or the measures or when it ends. But this is all because of a 
what, about a dozen complaints regarding Dr. Peterson's tweets criticizing climate change models, objecting to surgery on gender dysphoric minors, stating it was wrong for social service uh, workers and police to threaten to apprehend the children of the trucker convoy protesters. Uh, He also criticized major government figures like the Prime Minister. Dr. Peterson says that none of the complaints, though, are from current or past patients, and some are from out of the country. But that was enough for the Ontario College of Psychologists to press the charges. Although I hope, for goodness sake, none of them think this is going to do anything but make them feel better to take vengeance against someone who they, whose views they abhorred. I mean, Dr. Peterson himself says, hey, if he loses his license, so what? Because he hasn't practiced since 2017. He's independently wealthy. He'll continue to give his speeches. And if the example of the impact of efforts to shut down Donald Trump's an example, his popularity will probably increase. Many will rightfully see this as yet another example of the establishment versus individual freedom. But what many in the establishment fail to see, despite the growing avalanche of evidence, is that that battle, in that battle, the establishment is going to lose. Well, it is losing, along with everyone, including in the media, government institutions, university who side with it. That's all the time we have this week. Hey, of course, as I've been reminding you, we do have the World Outlook Conference. I bet you'll be happy when it's over and I'll stop talking about it, but there'll be much to talk about after because there's so much happening. As you heard from Tony Greer earlier and Victor and Ozzy, so much to talk about. And it's February 2nd and 3rd, Friday night, February 2nd and February 3rd. And I'm really looking forward to it. We've got a lot of special things planned for you including we're going to have a special guest from the world of politics to talk about how political decision make, uh, political decisions are made. I think you're going to love that insider's insight to it. I think you'll be shocked by it to some degree anyways, but so much more. I hope you join us, mikesmoneytalks.ca. Just go to events, click on, and join us for the World Outlook Conference. In the meantime, Well, depending on where you are, depending what the weather conditions are, none of them seem good, though. I hope things improve this week and you have a terrific week. 